Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 39, starting in verse 6, ending in verse 12. After I finish reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. I ask that you respond with, thanks be to God. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of my master, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. For he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. If you've been uh, with us in in our journey through Genesis, you read that story and it's like, Oh, finally, somebody actually stands firm in a test. Um, This is our story coming back to Joseph. Last week, we took a little bit of a detour, as Lucius said, and we looked at uh, Joseph's brother Judah and his um, ruined season of his life, but the way that God just lavishes him with grace when he humbles himself and repents God transforms his life. Uh, We see how God used his uh, sin even to bring about his good purposes. And now we come back to Joseph, and you'll remember the last time that we saw him, he was being stripped of his his cloak that his dad had given him. He's thrown into a pit. We see him pitifully begging his brothers not to do this thing, but they do it. They, um, they, They end up, by the providence of God, the thing that spares his life, they sell him to some Ishmaelites that are on their way to Egypt. And so that's the last time that we see him. We can picture Joseph traveling, you know, shuffling his feet on the dusty road with his head hung low and just feeling like, oh, it's all over. It's all over, right? He'd had these dreams, these, these dreams of, of being exalted, these dreams of his brothers and his dad bowing down to him. And here it is that his life seems to be a ruin. It seems that God has abandoned him. But um, there's always more. There's always more going on than meets the eye for those that are, that are God's chosen people. And the same is true for Joseph. And so um, what we didn't read for the sake of time is in the beginning of this chapter, we, we're going to find out that God hasn't left him, that God ha- is, is with him in Egypt. God, it, God is still blessing him. God still has his hand upon him. God's blessing uh, everything that he does. And so um, the, one of the amazing things that, we, that we're going to see as, as we think about this this thing that Joseph does here is that in spite of this unthinkable betrayal that 
that he's gone through, in spite of this devastating disappointment in his life, it didn't ruin him, right? It didn't ruin him. What we see in this chapter is a young man who truly loves his God. Like this, nobody stands a a test like this without some real heart change. This isn't just an intellectual understanding of who God is. He really loves the Lord. And it's incredible, given what he's gone through. This is obviously not the the soul of a person who's ravaged by bitterness and thoughts of revenge. And later on, we're going to see just how full and and surprising his forgiveness of his brothers is. Um, But that's one of the most amazing things and surprising things about the story. And so he's transported into this entirely new world in Egypt. Um, it's a move that would, be, would have been as shocking to, to this young man as if you were to take a, a rural Vermonter and put him in the heart of Manhattan, right? This is like Egypt is in its 15th dynasty. It's, it's exploding with growth. It, it's, it's, there's opulence all around him. And it's not just that. Um, this is a culture that, that is shaped by its worship of many gods. So the daily rhythms of life, um, I mean, the, the arts, the, arts the, the songs, the literature, everything is shaped by this worship of this multitude of gods. And so he's, he's thrown into that culture, and yet we see Joseph unswayed by the powerful, powerful allure of that world. Um, he finds himself in the heart of this world in Potiphar's mansion. Potiphar's a very powerful and important uh, government official, politician. And we're told he's the captain of Pharaoh's guard. In this house, Joseph would have been witness to the comings and goings of the most powerful uh, people in all of Egypt. And he's in an estate that's so grand that it's teeming with servants so that the whole thing can can run well. And, um, and Joseph finds himself at the head of it all because of the favor of God. The favor of God is on him. He succeeds in everything that he does, and he's exalted to, to the head of this estate. He's, lead, he's running the whole thing until it all comes crashing down. What we didn't read after this little section is that Potiphar's wife is going to now accuse him of, of uh, doing her harm, Right? And, um, and then he's thrown into prison. He's wrongly accused. He's thrown into prison. But at the end of the chapter, it's, it's really clear. God still hasn't left him. God's still with him. God's still blessing him. He's still putting his favor upon him. Um, but with this story, Moses means to show us what kind of a giant Joseph is in the faith. That, that Joseph... Um, stands head and shoulders above his fathers. He, he is a redwood among oaks. He, he, this story of shocking obedience in the face of terrible temptation is an unfortunately rare occurrence in the whole story of the Bible. Even, even King David, who was, who was a man after God's own heart, failed a test similar to this one, Right? So today, I want to zero in on this monumental stand against sexual temptation and see what we can learn from this powerful story. Um, We know that we are holy before God because of the imputed 
righteousness of Christ. That just means that Christ's righteousness gets credited to us when we put our faith in him, right? That that's our, stand, our standing before God. But we also know that God saved us so that we might grow in real holiness, and that is our sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then verse 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. The Bible is really clear on this, that yes, our righteousness is imputed to us, that's our standing before God, but there is also a practical righteousness that it is God's will that you and I learn to walk in day to day. And so um, we, we can do that. The, 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 the thing that I want you to know as we read about how Joseph does this is that yeah, it's because the Lord is with him. And guess what, Christian? He is with you. He was no more with Joseph than he is with you if you are a Christian. If, you, if you've been adopted into his family, then God is just as much with you, showering you with favor, blessing you. His hand is upon you. His presence is with you. He is empowering you to do all that he's commanded you to do. And so you can do everything that Joseph was able to do in this chapter in your stance against sin. So with that being said, let's pray together. I, I, I've, been, I've been praying all week for your hearts that you would be ready and eager to hear this message. So let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we bow our knees before you. We bow our hearts before you. You are holy, and you command us to be holy as you are holy. We thank you that it is through faith in Jesus Christ that you have made us holy in your sight. And we thank you that you also don't leave us right where we are, but that you sanctify us, you consecrate us, you set us apart, you teach us your ways. And I pray that you would do that today through your word, through this story, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to receive this word by faith and to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's see what we can take away from a careful reading of Joseph's stand against sexual temptation. Um, point number one, Joseph is God-centered in his fight against temptation. This has to be point number one because it is the most important. If you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this. I want you to come away from the story with this. The, the key to Joseph's ability to, to stand firm in this tempting uh, situation is right here in verse 9b, the end of 9. He, the last thing that he says to Miss Potiphar is, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That, that tells us, that it shows us what's in his heart, what is ultimate in his heart, what, what is the greatest motivation in his heart that keeps him from giving in. Two of Joseph's older brothers uh, were given over to sexual sin. So it ran in the family. He'd been betrayed, he'd been rejected and hated, he'd been abandoned and left all alone in a foreign land. And the point is, 
that this young man has every reason to act out if anyone ever had a reason to act out. And he, and he doesn't. We're going to see that Joseph is a God-centered man in all of life. We can look at this response that he gives and break it down and see this. He's God-centered in all of his relationships. He's God-centered in all of his faithful labors at work. He's God-centered in his perspective of his life. And it was this radically God-centeredness that encompassed all of his life that set him up to be God-centered in this moment of great temptation. When Joseph refuses Miss Potiphar's advances, he does so with a thoroughly God-centered view of his life. He essentially says, my master trusts me. My master has given me much. You are my master's wife and therefore off limits. And then he goes right to, how then can I do this against God? So what he's saying is, God is over and behind all of this. I cannot stomach the thought of grieving him with such a brash rebellion against him. You see that? You see that in his response? And so from Joseph, we can learn many valuable, applicable lessons in our own fight against sin. But without this first lesson, that we must be God-centered in our fight against sin, um, then all the other lessons will be useless. He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph, this is one of the things that I kept reflecting on as I was studying this passage. Is how did Joseph develop this kind of a heart for God? Where did it come from? He didn't have, he didn't have a Bible that he was carrying around with him in Egypt. He didn't have the Bible app on his, on his phone, I don't think. Um, the hieroglyph, the hieroglyph, yeah. How did he do it? Where did it come from? Where did this heart for the Lord come from? He wasn't, he wasn't in a community group. He wasn't going to church on Sundays. Where did it come from? And I believe that the beginning of the chapter points us to the answer. I believe that he recognizes what Moses is telling us in the beginning of this chapter, that the Lord was with him. He saw it. The Lord's with me. He sees it. He's, man, there's no way that, that, that I should be this good at this stuff. There's no way that, there, that I should be given this much favor. How did I end up in Potiphar's house, house after all? I mean, he's, his eyes are open to see the favor and blessing of God on his life. And, it, and I think it melts his heart to the Lord. Like, I think his, his eyes were open. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think this is what he's getting at. You'll start to see God all around you. Somebody treats you favorably at work. Your boss notices something that you did and shouldn't have noticed. And you go, that, was, that wasn't because of me. That was because of God. He actually loves me. He sees me. He cares about me. And I think that that's what happened for Joseph. I, I think that God softened his heart with all of this favor and blessing, and he can do the same for you if your eyes are open to see it, to see the ways that God's loving you. But it created, out of this love, it created a God-centered approach to his fight against sin and temptation. And so what about you? Is your motivation in your fight 
against sin more self-centered or more God-centered? Because until we are are motivated by a God-centered hatred of our sin, we will continue to be enslaved by it. Jerry Bridges, in his fantastic book, The Pursuit of Holiness, makes the case that we tend to have a self-centered motivations in our pursuit of holiness. He says, our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than God-centered. We are more concerned about our own victory over sin than we are about the fact that our sins grieve the heart of God. God wants us to walk in obedience, not victory. Obedience is oriented toward God. Victory is oriented toward self. Victory is a byproduct of obedience. That's such a helpful uh, quote. That little section of the book, early on in that book, he's, he's making the case that if, unless we do this, unless we learn to have the number one motivation be our heart to, to please him, I want to obey God. Unless that is the root motivation in my fight against sin, I'm going to, I'm going to continue to be enslaved by it. So if we want to grow in sexual purity, or in holiness in any other area of our lives, we must begin here by cultivating an entirely God-centered perspective. Our motivation to get rid of sin is oftentimes more about us than it is about the Lord. That brings me to my second observation from this passage. And that is that Joseph is surprisingly thoughtful of others in his daily life. Now, when you think about, like, what, what does that have to do with his purity? Everything. It has everything to do with his purity. L- look at the first thing out of his mouth when she offers this to him. It says, it says that he refused, and he said to her, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. This is an often overlooked but powerful heart change that is necessary to live a pure life. The second greatest motivation in Joseph's refusal to give in to sexual sin was his faithfulness to his master. Notice that in the heat of temptation, Joseph's attention is not focused on himself but on Potiphar. That should blow our minds. In a moment like this, he is surprisingly others-oriented. Couldn't Joseph have despised his master? Sure, he'd shown him favor, but Joseph was still his slave. And Potiphar was always gone away on business. If he were simply a better husband, his wife wouldn't be drawn to other men. Didn't his wife deserve a man who was present and able to care for her? I mean, you can see how Joseph could have so easily justified an affair, right? Right? But instead, he's concerned with Potiphar, with being faithful to the one that he's serving. This is an absolutely crucial weapon in the fight against temptation. He is radically unselfish. He is is surprisingly others-oriented. He may have been forced into slavery, but you see that he is a true servant from the heart. He's not just putting on a show in order to climb the ladder in his workplace. Like, this is genuine. 
what he is saying. And the reason that this is so absolutely vital in our fight against sin is because sin is by nature self-serving. Don't miss this. All sin is by nature self-serving. And so it is birthed, sin is birthed out of selfishness. So if you want to begin to see a radical change in the obedience in your life, then here's one huge place to start. Turn your focus away from yourself and make a practice of turning your focus toward others. James 1.14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You see that? Sin is by nature self-focused. That self-focus is the first step onto the slippery slope of sin. We begin to focus on our own fleshly desires, and they lure us away from obedience to God. But if our continual posture is one of others-oriented service, then when temptation comes our way, we are going to be far less likely to want to gratify ourselves. You see that? Paul says in Romans 13 that love is the fulfillment or the fulfilling of the law. So if we want to grow in holiness practically, then we need to grow in love. Love for God, a God-centered perspective on all of life, and love for others, a servant perspective on all of life. Um, In the same passage in Romans 13, Paul goes on to say that we have to put off and put on. We put off the works of darkness. We put on the armor of light. We put off our old self. We put on Christ. And I think that what I'm trying to say here is is that oftentimes, myself included, in our fight against sin, we, we, we we do half of it. We put off, we try to put off the old sin, and we fail to do the other part, which is putting on Christ. And, and who is Jesus? He's a servant of all. He's the most radically others-oriented human being ever. <laughs> so we do half of the equation. We try to put off the sin, but we never put on that new orientation toward others. And so we try to put off the sin, but we're still oriented toward self. And we can't figure out why sin keeps beating us up. And I think Joseph got this. I I think he was so, somehow by this point in his life, he's become so radically others-oriented. So I've been been thinking about this a lot. What, What does this really look like in practice? I was reading the Sermon on the Mount in Luke's Gospel. And Jesus keeps talking about this blessing, the blessing your enemies, praying for them, giving to people who you don't, you're not expecting anything in return. It's, and the thing that hit me, the words that hit me as I was reading this kind of life that Jesus is talking about is that it is surprisingly thoughtful. It's surprisingly thoughtful of others. And this is a bit embarrassing to admit, but whatever. Um, I have made this excuse so many times in my life that, 
well, I'm just not a thought, I'm just not a very thoughtful person. Like, that's just not like my gift. So in other words, I'm gifted with selfishness. <laughs> we have to learn to be thoughtful of other people. We are all, by nature, self-centered. And so, and so it's, it's, it takes intentionality to be surprisingly thoughtful of others. So what's that going to look like for you? Maybe you're expected to bring a bag of chips to group and you surprise everybody with steaks. Maybe you're expected to get your wife flowers for the, your anniversary, but you surprise her with a, a getaway. Maybe you're expected to clean your room, but you surprise your family by cleaning the kitchen too. Those, those who make a, a constant practice of, of trying to be surprisingly thoughtful of others, to bless others intentionally at all times, what you're doing is you are turning your focus from yourself to others. And in the fog of temptation, when it comes, and it will, then you will have trained yourself not to gratify your own desires. Point number three, Joseph is thankful for what God has given him. Look at the beginning of verse nine. He says, speaking of his master, he's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. So the next line of defense that we see in Joseph's refusal of sin is his gratitude for what he does have instead of focusing on what he doesn't have. Joseph recognizes that God, through Potiphar, has given him so many blessings. He's not kept back anything from Joseph except Miss Potiphar. And the way our flesh works is that we don't want to focus on all the things that God has given us. We want to focus on the one thing he hasn't, right? We tend to focus on the one thing God hasn't given us. And isn't that exactly what Mrs. Potiphar is doing here? What does she not have at her fingertips? She's wealthy, she's powerful, but what is she obsessed with getting? The one guy in the house she can't have. She can't even enjoy what she has because rather than being grateful and content with all of her blessings, she, she's a miserable woman who, who just wants and wants and wants, craving and lusting for what isn't for her. And ironically, it's her that's the slave and not Joseph. This is the nature of lust. It is a craving for what God has not given you. All that you do have is from him. John the Baptist says, what can a man receive unless it is given to him from God? Every bit, every, everything that you have, is, it's from him. And if we can open our eyes to see all that he has given and begin to cultivate a heart of gratitude for that and see that it is enough, it is more than enough, then we can stop focusing on the thing we don't have, but that we want. The very first sin comes back to this, remember? Adam and Eve have been given everything in the whole garden, 
It's all theirs, except for one tree. And the, and the focus, the obsession of their life becomes the tree, the one. Because God must be holding out on me if I can't have that one tree. I think that Adam and Eve failed at first by not being more grateful for what they did have. And then they were lured away by their own selfish desires. So cultivating a heart of thankfulness toward God is a powerful deterrent to sin, especially to sins of lust or covetousness. And so, so practically, that's just going to look like thanking God throughout your day, looking for the blessings in your life, actively thanking him. Not just, I'm not talking about just a general, like, yeah, I think I'm thankful. I think I'm pretty thankful. I'm not talking about that. I mean, actually thank him. He wants you to actually say it, right? Like, I don't, like, I appreciate it when my kids are like, thank you for that. I don't, I don't want them just to say, like, well, you know I'm thankful. I mean, right? It's, no, we have to say it. We got to say it. And, it. and it steers our hearts toward genuine gratitude when we practice saying, thank you, God. Thank you. I didn't deserve that. That's such a blessing. That's such a gift. Fourthly, Joseph makes no little compromises with temptation. No little compromises. This is very important. Verse 10, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Really, really important. Notice the diligent distance that Joseph puts between himself and his temptation. He won't listen to her reasoning. He won't, he won't appease her when she asks Joseph just to sit down. Just sit down and just let me just talk to you for just a second. He won't listen to her. He, he is avoiding getting anywhere near a tempting scenario. And this is instructive for any man or woman who is wanting to avoid sexual sin or any other kind. So let me ask, are you making little compromises with your sin? Are you making little compromises like here and there? Maybe you're not looking at pornography, but maybe you're watching movies with steamy scenes in it, and that's just your little compromise. Maybe you don't go on you know, shopping sprees and spend exorbitant amounts of money, but you go on Amazon and you just look at all the stuff you wish you could buy. I've actually done that. Joseph won't let this sin into his heart in even little ways. You see that? He, he's, he's, he's not going to give this thing an inch because don't, we all know that if you give sin an inch, it will take a mile. And so he won't compromise with this sin. And there, there is no compromising with sin. It, it doesn't work. You have to put it to death. That's the only way to deal with sin. Jesus said, whoever even looks at a woman to lust after has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he goes on right from there to say, so cut off every avenue, cut off every possible way that sin is creeping into your life, even if it is very costly. And so let me ask you, church, are you this vigilant in your fight against sin? Are you willing to do costly things to cut off temptation? 
Or are you tending more to manage your sin and to make little compromises and to give it a little bit here and there so it will just shut up and stop yelling at you? You have to put it to death. Here's one way that the Bible puts it, Romans 13, 14. It says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's that idea that I was just talking about, putting on Christ. And, and what? Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's a, that's a really good verse. Don't make any provision for it. Not little bits of provision, none at all. And that's the only way to deal with our sin. We have to kill our sin or it will kill us. So, Joseph um, doesn't make any kind of compromises. Fifthly, Joseph knows that accountability is a shield against temptation. Where do I get that? Well, look at verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house. It's on this day that it all comes to a head of all days. And Moses wants us to see that. And I think Joseph understands it. I think Joseph goes into this situation knowing this is a danger zone. Joseph knows that accountability is a shield against temptation. The day that all of this comes to a head is when no one else can see. And it shows us the danger of anonymity. Joseph could have easily said in this situation, no one will ever know. My family is in another country. All the other men are outside doing their work. And I think he recognizes that here in the house, behind closed doors, with no one, with no one looking on, he is in his most vulnerable place. He understands that accountability is a shield. He sees here that he is far more, more vulnerable to temptation that he has otherwise stood firm against up until this day, right? This is not because he isn't a man of integrity. It isn't because Joseph didn't believe that God was with him or that God saw everything that he did. He, he did. But those with the most integrity recognize the danger of anonymity and therefore the importance of living their lives in the light with others. I need to say that again. Those with the most integrity recognize the danger of anonymity and therefore the importance of living their lives in the light with others. 1 John 1, 6-7 says, If we say we have fellowship with Jesus while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light as he is in the light the light. You know, when I was a boy and when many of you were a child, um, I would have had to have gone to a, a, a convenience station or, or something like that to get my hands on pornography. Um, I couldn't have done it, in other words, without someone knowing what I was doing, right? But today, we walk around with these little portals to the universe where we can see whatever our flesh desires in the moment. 
and no one will know, except one. And it's that dangerous, that power of anonymity that has, that has more people enslaved to pornography than, than ever in history. It's a plague on, on our society. And I just want to say, if you are enslaved by, by lust, by pornography of any kind, that the first step to getting free is stepping into the light. The first step. You can't, you can't fight sin in the dark. That's right where the enemy wants us. In the dark where no one can see. So don't let shame keep you in the dark. This is what the church is for. The church is here to be a, a help to you. To, if, if you will come into the light, if you will find a person to talk to, to open up with them about your sin, I promise you, you will be met with grace. And the church is here to help you. So don't let shame keep you hiding in the dark or keep you from the joy that's found from walking in the light. Last thing that we see from Joseph's um, stand against this sin. Joseph flees when the temptation becomes strong. It says, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. So here we find, I think, the final weapon in, in Joseph's successful fight for purity. When the temptation became too great, he fled. It was no longer the time to stand and fight. It was no longer the time for speaking boldly to Mrs. Potiphar. There was only one way out at this moment, and that was to turn and run. Joseph knew that if he stayed in the house for a moment longer, he would have given in to sin. Even though though this meant leaving his clothing behind, running into the yard in his underwear, even though it meant that he was going to look guilty, think about it, even though it meant that he was going to look guilty running out of the house in his underwear in front of all the, the men out there, whoever was out there, Joseph was ultimately living to please God, to do whatever that whatever it took, no matter the cost. And here we learn that even the strongest of men and women will at times have to run in order to escape the powerful sway of temptation. And this is surely what Paul had in mind when he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 14. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation. He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. We we fail to flee from temptation when we become overly confident in our flesh. When we think, I could never, I would never, right? That's the point there. Don't Lest, lest you fall, don't, don't think that you can stand against all the temptations. There, you're going to have to run. You're going to have to flee sometimes. We, we would do well to heed the words of Philippians 3.3 3 and put no confidence in the flesh. 
I feel like all of my greatest failures in life have, been, have come from times where I put too much confidence in my own self. I thought, I, I'm good, I got this. I believe that Joseph, um, I think he already had this plan in mind. I think. I don't think that this running out of the house was a spur-of-the-moment decision. I think old Joe's too smart for that. And I believe that he had decided ahead of time what he would do if this scenario came up. I think. I think the decision had already been made when his mind was the clearest. So friends, let's not wait until the fog of temptation had descended upon us to decide how we will respond. Consider where, where are the areas in your life that you are most easily lured away and decide now, while you're clear-headed, how you will respond in that moment to flee. Finally, wrapping this up, Jesus is the true and better Joseph. Um, how, do we, how do we end this sermon? How do we keep this sermon from being a, a, a mere appeal for us to dig deeper and try harder and do better? Because that's not, that's not going to work ever, will it? We have to be changed from the inside out, not the outside in. Our sin comes from inside. The problem isn't the temptations out there. The problem is our own hearts that desire evil. We're lured and enticed by our own desire. What we need are new hearts. What we need is a changed desire. That's why I began this sermon where I did that we must be God-centered in all of life and in all of our fight against sin. Because it's ultimately only God who can deliver us from sin. We are not strong enough. We really do need God, just as we were singing this morning. At the end of the day, Joseph withstood the toughest temptations because the Lord was with him, giving him success. And if you and I want to live obedient and pure lives for the Lord, the strength to do so must come from him, not from ourselves. And I believe Joseph understood that far better than most. But Joseph, as great of a man as he was, is not the real hero of the story of the Bible. He's simply a pointer to the true hero of the story. Jesus is a true and better Joseph who withstood every temptation, and he never sinned, not once. And Jesus, because sin never so much as threatened to pull him away from his father, he was the one man who didn't have to run at the height of temptation, but was able to stand firm, look the devil in the eye, stand firm on the word of God, and defeat him. Joseph's obedience in this test is pointing us to Jesus' obedience in every test. And like I said, we didn't get to read the end of the story, but Joseph was falsely accused by Mrs. Potiphar. He's arrested for something he didn't do. But it was all part of God's plan. That's what we're going to find out. It was all part of God's plan to get Joseph where he wanted him so that when the time came, Joseph could be exalted to the right hand of the most powerful man in the land. And he could save his brothers and the nations 
from destruction. Jesus is the true and better Joseph because he too was arrested for something he didn't do. He was wrongly accused. He was crucified. But it was all so that God could exalt him to his right hand so that Jesus might save his brothers and an adopted family from every nation from certain death. And so, friends, if you will turn to Jesus from your sin, put your trust in him and in what he has done for you on the cross, he will forgive you and he will save you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. As, as we have just been thinking about this, um, the reality of our sin and, and the need to fight and the ways to fight, O oh Lord, it is so good to come back and just to remember where we stand because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would walk out of here knowing that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that we don't fight our sin from a place of guilt, Lord, but we fight our sin from a place of acceptance and forgiveness, that the gospel has given us ground to stand on, Lord, and that it is from our place of being adopted by you and forgiven and loved that we, that we can say no to the lure of sin. Help us to be a people, God, who are God-centered in all of life and in our fight against sin and who look for ways to be a surprising blessing to others, a people who make no compromises for our, with our sin. Lord, a people who are consecrated to you, who are pleasing to you in every way. May it be, Lord Jesus. Amen.